Pixel Sift. Hello and welcome to Pixel Sift, the show dedicated to indie games from around Australia and the world. My name is Mitchell Lowe and thank you for joining me on this episode. Now, my guest this evening is the programmer and co-owner of One Shark Studios, uh, the creators of Doors of Insanity, uh, Logan Brandjord. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. So we'll be finding out more about Doors of Insanity uh, right after this. Hey there. If you're enjoying the show and you want to hear more, subscribe to Pixel Sift on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, or listen on pixelsift.com.au. See you there. I guess to kick off the start of this interview, um, what is Doors of Insanity? What's it all about? Sure. Uh, Doors of Insanity is a roguelike game that is based around RPG card aspects. Uh, But the main thing that we tried to bring to the table is the ability to equip and outfit your character throughout the run. So basically each run, by the end of it, the amazing thing about our game should be the look and feel of your character and all the bizarre uh, scars and different artifacts and things you've collected along the way. So we want each run to be a brand new experience. And you're basically fighting through a dungeon uh, again and again. Um, so how long has it been developing for? We've been working on this game for a little over a year. But the interesting thing is we've been working on these systems for about four or five years by now. And we just kind of keep bringing them forward from our past games and take the things that have really worked and try to iterate on them. So tell me more about these systems. Um, One system that really worked out well for us, we had a rather popular game called Great Heroes Beard. And that game featured a character that was fully customizable. And since we have a really strong 2D artist and skeletal animations and stuff, he was able to swap out skins for all the different pieces of equipment and put some really fun and bizarre stuff in there. So we found out that people really love to equip their character again and again um, throughout a, a game run. That's one big one. And then the other one, basically just the ability to create an RPG. It's like something that you can't just do the first time really well and be balanced. Um, But our designer is really well-versed at it after about six games now. He kind of knows how to keep the game flowing to where you're not going to get stuck and to where it's not too easy. So we've seen a bit of resurgence of a... of the card game, uh, the digital card game kind of um, thing over the years. How does yours differ from other card-based video games? We wanted to do a lot with kind of our personal interests and a lot with artwork because we have a strong artist, as I said, who really comes up with like bizarre stuff. I mean, things that are even shocking to us. We can't figure out how he came up with it. So um, we also do what's called lucid dreaming. So we go in and we bring back content from our subconscious and we put them into the game. So there's things like ice cream swords. There's like bizarre matchups that you're not going to just think up on your own. You either have to be on a drug, in a lucid dream, or in another state to be able to come up with these kind of scenarios. So we want to bring that in because we feel like everything's a little too plastic out there. We're, We're getting tired of the games we're seeing. So do you have like a big a big board where you like you, you wake up one night like oh that was in my dream. Oh yeah, I got a I got a whole notebook full of weird stuff. I have like a database of the weirdest stuff I need for years of games. Yeah. So is everybody uh so even the artists, the programmers, everybody can contribute in this way like I had a dream or yes. I had an experience and uh it contributes to it. Yeah, we're kind of like um I don't want to say like spiritual, but we're kind of like 
you know, metaphysical people. We like that crazy stuff. And the first thing we do in the morning, we all share what kind of crazy dreams we had and what went on and things like that. So it's just one of the things we enjoy. And it definitely helps you be creative. I mean, there's been times in a dream that I've heard like a whole symphony or a beautiful piece of art. And then in real life, I can't draw a stick man. So to me, it's like a super interesting place where you can be inspired, you know, especially with COVID where I have like four white walls around me all the time. <laughs> it's, it's nice to have that other side of the world each night. So you must be really good at taking the ideas you've had in your dreams. And I know you said you can't draw, but how do you, yeah. how do you get those ideas across to your creative, to the people actually making the assets and, and, and bringing it to life? Because I'm really terrible at that. Uh, yeah, our artist is very generous with his time and efforts. That's one nice thing. So when we give him an idea, he'll kind of ask us about it and then he'll put his own spin on it, of course. And he really doesn't, doesn't uh, put up much of a fuss. The second... The second we have something that he finds interesting, he, he just flows on it. And he's really into anime and stuff. So everything we do is going to come out a little bit, you know, anime style, a little bit cartoony and stuff. So we kind of grew as a team just to love that. Have there already been, have, it sounds like uh, the sky's the limit for you guys, but um, are there, have there already been ideas that have been like, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe that's too much? <laughs> yeah, I always come up with features that are bad, like design ideas that will never work. So I've, in the beginning, I used to get shot down way more by the designer, but now I've learned to like temper myself with ideas. And also, I mean, as a programmer, it's not like I can focus that much towards it. So the designer is kind of like this great gatekeeper of all the ideas. And he has like a core template that he knows is going to work. And he's like, how much will I let in without, you know, spoiling the broth here? Um, so yeah, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And then also with artwork, we actually run through iterative tests. We did ours on Facebook this time. Um, so we did the game with one whole art style and it just wasn't popping off. People weren't gravitating towards it. And he redid the whole game. And after that, I mean, we were, we were at demo status when he redid the game. So it's a lot of art. And he was willing to redo the whole thing. And now it's, it's really gaining in popularity and people are loving it. So let's talk about the development process now. Um, so you, you said that you had one art style and you switched over. At what point do you realize that it's the art style that people aren't connecting with? Well, on Facebook, we literally just did these shares on different game, you know, game developer groups and game player groups and things like that. And they just weren't generating like a lot of attention. You can easily tell not many people were clicking ours, even though the art was, I mean, in our eyes, it was beautiful art. It wasn't poorly done at all, but it just wasn't like new and different. So it wasn't catching people's eye. And then as soon as we started to change it, you know, all the likes and clicks and love and all the little symbols started popping up and we're like, ah, this is good. This is working out. And then we just kind of kept going with that. Was it difficult uh, to have the conversation with the team saying, hey, it's not working. Let's, sw let's switch it up. Yeah. It's, and it wasn't one person. Like we all felt that the energy was low. We liked the game. We liked our design. And we're like, man, what's, what's missing? So... It kind of took us, it gave us new life at a point when the project was just having troubles. We've been there before with, you know, we've been around the block a little bit, so we knew something was missing. And yeah, it was a motivating factor when we started seeing some attention finally and found a good publisher. Everything started working out. Do you think it's important for creative people, not just game developers, to learn to identify that point where something needs to change? Sure. Yeah, I would say it's incredibly important because... You think you're the greatest 
whatever it is that you do in the world most of the time until it slaps you in the face and tells you different. And then you have to be able to lower your pride and say, okay, well, what about me needs to change at this moment? It's kind of hard. But if you want to get anywhere, you're going to have to take some turns, I would say. So the game is focused mainly around the idea of purgatory. What about that fascinates you and your team? Oh, everything. <laughs> it's like the most <laughs> open, open uh, environment because you're allowed to do everything. Like anything that would occur in heaven, hell, or in between, you get to put in the game. And when, when we have dreams and stuff, that's kind of what it is. It's like beautiful places, you know, there's nightmares, there's all this stuff in between. And it was like the most unlimiting um, genre and art style we could think of. So when we had that setting, we instantly thought, well, that also gives us a progression because you have something you want to get out of. No one wants to be in purgatory. So it came with a lot of good. We like it. With all this unlimited, with, with the unlimited potential of purgatory, how do you keep yourself grounded in, in your ideas and, 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 and focused? I guess we try to unground and unfocus all the way. And that's what our, that's what our base ground is. The fact that, okay, so in our game, we have a system called the encounters. And when you encounter something, we never want you to see something that you've seen in another game. You know, and it could, it doesn't have to be matching what's in the environment because it's supposed to be kind of an etheric dream sort of place. So we stay ungrounded if we can. You know, it's just not, not like it's an attention thing. It's just like nothing, when you see something you've seen before, it doesn't do anything to your mind, doesn't stimulate you. And it's the same thing in life. If you walk down the street and you walk down on the grass instead of the sidewalk, it feels different. So we want to at least give that experience. Otherwise, we want to go away. <laughs> we can't do that. It seems like originality is very important to your studio, but are there any games which you do allow yourself to maybe borrow from or take inspiration from? Oh, sure. Yeah. Just like, as you can imagine, with all these popular card games, we had to see what was out there who's doing it well, you know, what should we be doing that's similar to theirs? How close should we get to them without, you know, going into their lane? Um, So obviously Slay the Spire was a huge, huge hit and they've done a fantastic job. So we are interested in that. Our last game, Great Heroes Beard, we're very interested to take chunks of that that we're working. And then we also saw a game kind of coming out at the same time as us called Monster Train. And they, we didn't really seem similar to them, but we saw something that they were doing way better than us at the time, which was they had a map that made you feel like you're really going somewhere. And at the time, our game felt like you were just making choices down a straight hallway. So we had to kind of expand out and add to our features because we saw that you know, they had something we liked in a way. So yeah, definitely. We're not above that in any way. The game has been in beta for about six months. Um, what's that process been like, uh, from beginning to end? Um, like how do you know that, uh, uh, I guess what's the beta process been like over the past six months? Sorry, we'll start there. So in our past games, we have always been a smaller team. We didn't have a huge publisher helping us out and doing all these great things. Another indie does, but, um, we always had a core group of discord fans. Um, so our discord is decent size and they always willing to help us out and play the builds. And they never give them away and betray us. So we have great testers there. And we always start there with our demos. Um, So then once we got past that, we did this process called G-Round. And another indie set us up with those guys. And basically, that's a more advanced uh, beta tester group 
and they do the whole process and organize everybody and they give you the feedback. You just have to kind of add in some APIs and stuff for their system to work. Um, and then after that, we did the Steam beta. And the Steam beta was a lot more aimed at getting people to wishlist the game and get some attention on Steam. But we did get a lot of great discussion from them also. So we had like three different beta test rounds that just kind of like, as a programmer, kicked my butt pretty hard. But it made the game a lot better. And, and I guess you'd call it, we survived it, is what we did. I think people might not be so aware, but how involved is someone as, as a publisher involved in the beta testing and actually the development of the game? I would say the publisher is way bigger than people realize because they're organizing so many events, but every single one of these events comes with feedback that changes the game. So it's like, it would be two different worlds to not have a publisher involved. And they also can curate your content and help you understand you know, what parts are missing and what parts aren't right. I guess in our case also, it's marketing changes your game because you're going to have to at some point understand that you're going to need to cater to the people who will likely like your game. And you can't just be 100% what you want to be. Sometimes you got to balance that. So we happen to have a lot of um, people in the Asian market and the Russian market, and we have to know how to hit them better than we did before and please them better than we have in the past. Cause I'm from the USA and the other two guys are from Latvia and you know, there's cultural and different things that we don't know about. So a publisher that's global knows all about that stuff and knows these other markets in a way that we don't. So it definitely changed us. What's one or two things you've learned about those two markets that you needed to do? You, do you need to make different versions or that, that you need to, or what's, what's one of the changes you need to make for these that you need to make for these markets? Number one thing is that localization and translation is not um, an afterthought. It's a huge, important thing because these people are playing your game and getting a poor, like if we don't go all out with translation and put it on multiple sets of eyes, um, it's hard for a person who only speaks English to understand what it's like to see a game that's really poorly translated. A few times I've seen it in my life, but um, that's a huge thing. So this time the game is going to be translated well. And I think our past games were kind of like, translate them so we can say that it's also got Russian, you know, let's just get through it. Um, So that's one big thing. And then another big thing is kind of being able to introduce uh, female characters to the game because we had never really put a big focus on that. But some of the other markets, especially the Asian market, really likes to have fully featured female customization. And for every reason, you know, we have no reason against it, but... We didn't have it in the game, so we, we put extra time to get that feature in. And So what's the difference? Because people might not realize what the difference is between beta and early access even. So what, what is the, what's the difference between those two processes? I think it's uh, different for every game, but for us, it is your beta testers, we gave them about 80% of the existing content. And so early access is going to get 100% of what's there. And then once again, early access is probably like, of what it's going to be. So they're just kind of like a ladder and beta test. You know, you only put in features that are ready to be seen and other things are still in the works. So I'd say it's about 20% difference at a big level of polish. All right, let's move on to your, a bit of your career, um, Logan. So um, what made you want to get into uh, game development? I had always done it as a kid. So when I was, got my first computer, I was about 14 years old. My dad brought it home and 
Like the first thing I was trying to do is create, recreate Final Fantasy games in basic code and all this stuff. So I was like hooked on it. He had to kick me outside as much as he could, but I was really into it, like to an unhealthy degree. And he was like a hunter and outdoorsman, and I was like a nerdy kid. So <laughs> I just, I loved it ever since then. And then in like school, I had the TI-83 graphing calculators and I was making games on those and sending them to my friends. So it was like just so naturally fun. I've always wanted to do it. And then when I got older, I got into the working and business world and I started to feel really uninspired by everyday life. And I kind of thought, what did I do when I was a kid that made it like so fun to be around? And that was one of the things. So I tried to come back to it for a few years. And now I think it's here to stay. I really love it. So do you have any formal uh, video game uh, schooling, uh, video game development schooling? Or is it just, are you self-taught? Yeah, just self-taught. I did um, contract for a few companies before. And it was mostly as like a test. You know, am I just a hack or can I actually do it? And then once I... Worked with them, I saw that much of the level of talent that I was working with, similar to me, and that, you know, yes, I could make a high-quality game. Just needed patience and to keep, keep grinding away. What, what are some things that maybe someone going through formal study can do to maybe supplement that in maybe some of the techniques you've used to learn? Yeah, I would say a lot of the people that are getting formal study are actually doing a fantastic job. The only thing that they're missing is some of the battle scars and pain that come along with being in an industry that's like, it's not very mature. So you can't, like I can go into a day job somewhere else and work 40 hours and get paid way better and have time off and never worry about, is there another project lined up? Never worry about like a bug list that's so ridiculously long. It's a big sacrifice if you're going to be contracting as a game developer or if you're going to be working in the game industry. And they, they might not see that yet. Hopefully it changes. But as of right now, I think the job security and job quality is a bit lower than it should be because it's a demanding career. It's really, really difficult and takes a lot of time. If you could change one thing about the industry at the moment, well, what, what, do you think, uh, what do you think you would change to make it a little bit better for everyone involved? Oh, that's so hard. That's really hard. <laughs> I just would want them to be able to maybe shift some more of the income into the hands of those who are doing it. Because I think there's a lot of money in the industry. I don't know, but it seems like there's a lot of money in the industry and they're taking advantage of the fact that people really dream of that career. So they're willing to take less to be there. But a couple of years in, they'll realize at some point it's just another job too. And it gets really hard. And how much do you want to give up of your life? Like, let's say someone becomes 30 years old and they have a child. And then they're grind. They say there's no grind time, but there is. So then they're doing crunch time of 50 to 60 hours and they're not home with their family. Then they got to switch careers. And then you go, okay, I'm going to go program at a bank now. And then they have to look at your resume and you say, you know, I made shooter games for company X and it doesn't cross over. It's, it's kind of a hard path right now. And I, I wish that they could at least make it better paying and more secure for those who go that route. Are there any strategies you've implemented at your studio to make sure that everyone gets their fair share? Yeah. I mean, typically you'll see in most game studios that there's different income levels per each role. And one of the things that we have is it's just like strict 100%, no matter what the scenario, you never ask anybody else about how they use their time. You don't ask anyone else for 
a single dollar more than what you make. So we're all split perfectly, one, two, three. And um, everything is so equal that if it's like one person's grinding a little too hard than the others, then the other ones will do something to make up for it, you know? It's like the honor system because we're such a small team and good friends. So it's a lot easier for indie studios, I think. Do you have any tips uh, for getting for not getting burnt out or overwhelmed uh, with, with work? I think um, having a fitness routine is a big deal. All of us like to work out at least once or twice during the day, like little, if whether it's a walk or you go to the gym or do something, but you have to get up and move around, make your blood flow, make your brain work. So... I think a lot of people already do that, but if you don't, it can make a huge difference, I would say. So you're an international team. Yeah. How does, uh, so how does things like time zones and, and things affect you? What's that like in developing international? Ah, we're like a family now. I can tell you like when they get out of bed practically, it's creepy. <laughs> but I know that at about 4 a.m. they're going to log in, 4 a.m. for my time. And then I know that about 4 p.m., 5 p.m., if they haven't had any drinks or if it's not a weekend, they're going to sign off for the night and go watch a movie or something like that. And then I usually take over later because we're on like total opposite ends. So it works out nice because you also need a little time when you're not interacting with each other. You're kind of focusing on your own thing for a bit. And all of us have that. So I think it's nice. How did you meet? They had posted an ad on the Unity developer um, job forums or whatever, like I don't know what you call it then, the not serious job forums. So, yeah, so like they were making games for, um, what is it, Congregate. They were putting games up on Congregate, and they had a couple of really popular games in their past, and they had lost their programmer. And I had recently gotten into game programming, and I had kind of done programming on the business side before that. So I responded to their ad and kind of sent them like, some of these crappy mobile games that I had attempted to make. And I said, I could do this so far, but I can learn the rest. You just got to trust me. And they did. And I told them like, your guys' artwork is awesome. And what you've done so far is awesome. So they said, looks like you're our guy. And from there, we just made it happen. It was cool. I felt kind of honored because they were far ahead of me in talent at the time. So they kind of took a chance on me. I think a lot of people in the industry and actually a lot of people in every industry will feel at some point that, wow, a lot of people are way ahead of me in this industry yes. um, and I'm joining it. How, how, did, how do you deal with that feeling and how do you keep, how do you, how do you stop that from overwhelming you? I guess I had to go face it kind of. So I worked as a contractor for a few companies because I wanted to just immerse myself around professionals in the industry and say like, how far behind am I really? Am I even close? And yeah, there were some shaky moments, you know, some things I didn't know or that I did poorly, but I definitely learned from it. And I think now I'm in a place that, that I could hang if I had to. But the, for me, the only way is trial by fire. I'll never do it if I'm not like forced to. So kind of just jumped in. What was your first trial by fire? I won't say what the game is, but <laughs> <laughs> it was this Everything about it seemed simple, but it just got more and more complicated. So it was like a racing game where you have these characters that need to angle and orient themselves to the ground at all different places. And just things that I haven't done. Like I could just do basic Unity noob stuff. And so I had to like do that. And then I also had to have like ghost racers that remembered their paths from before and save that. And it was really a challenge. And, you know, about three quarters of the way through it, 
the game was working well, but I felt like it was held together by like popsicle sticks and duct tape. I was so, I didn't want to see it ever again, to be honest. But yeah, I learned a lot. And since then I've come a long way. So I think everybody's got to deal with that. I don't know what you're supposed to do to get the skill. You have to make a couple bad projects, really. Unless there's another way. Maybe that's what school's for, for the normal people. <laughs> I should have done that, but I didn't. Is there anything about Doors of Insanity that you've worked really hard on that you wished more people noticed? I think one of the coolest features of the game that kind of goes under the radar are the encounters. Because we could have just had a flat picture of an encounter where all you have is three choices and it looks like a little book. But we added in custom sound to each one of them. We added in custom particles and we added in custom artwork for each one. And it's not like you're getting a lot out of that artwork. You have to have a whole painting and concept and storyline for each one of them. So it took a lot of time and effort for us to make those. Um, so I hope people like them, but they're kind of like consumable, like eating a piece of candy. You click and it's gone. But we tried really hard on them. How important is it for developers to be on social media? For us, it was only useful in determining kind of the path of the game before we met a publisher because we really wanted to outsource that and, and let them do it well. So now that they do it, we're more or less responding on social media to what they tell us is important. So they'll say, hey, we're doing these three announcements in March. You need to give us the content for these and then we'll post them at this interval. Or, hey, you guys are going to be involved in this event and you need to post this on Twitter. So with someone managing it, it was really important to have that because we would never have done that as well. There's no way we could keep up with the kind of marketing and social media that a publisher can do. And then I've had plenty of friends that launch games without a publisher that went, they put their heart and soul into it for years and it sank. It's because that's the missing piece. There's, they're going up against like, Mike Tyson's of marketing and there's no chance. I mean, you have to be like in five countries in a year to be able to make this happen for all the different events and things you got to do. So social media is really important, but doing it yourself, I'm not sure it's so important. It is. Uh, it does seem like a lot of uh, uh, indie developers, like uh, they're just wondering whether or not to go for a publisher or not. And I think that that seems like it's been very important for you. We've um, experienced self-publishing a bit, but I've also watched a lot of stories and I've had a lot of peers that have launched their game. And, you know, I just really had high hopes for them and it hurts my soul to see their game, even after they attend events themselves and try to get a buzz going. You know, they're just missing so much knowledge that they need to know, like, how many wish lists does it take for you to get in this algorithm so your game can be seen? How many, you know, where do you have to show up and whose hand do you have to shake to get on front page of this thing, you know, it's just too much. You have to be good. You have to specialize, I think. So you, you've, you've selected another indie as your publisher. What, what, is about, what is it about them that um, made you think, hey, these could be the guys for us? We interviewed with a handful of publishers, but most of them treated, didn't treat us poorly, but we could just obviously understand that we were a number to them because they weren't personally interested in it as much or they didn't, seem like they're as personally interested in it. So it felt like they were going to do nothing for us except the basic, like they had a boilerplate that they were going to apply to us. And another indie was like right from the get-go, super scrappy about everything. And I mean, they made more work for us, to be honest. 
they like knew everything that we had to do. <laughs> they almost doubled our workload, but doubled our fan base at the same time. I, we were really impressed by the fact that they knew a lot about our game and they cared about it right after the demo and had a plan and an idea. They weren't just kind of taking on another game. So that, that impressed us. Well, um, I think we've come to the end of the episode. Uh, thank you very much for joining me, Logan. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, you can find out more about Doors of Insanity and One Shot Games. Uh, you guys have a Facebook page. Uh, you can look up Doors of Insanity on Steam. And you can have a look at OneShark.com, at OneShark.com, and that's their Twitter account. Uh, did I miss any of them? No, no, that's good. And uh, people want to follow your work in particular, uh, Logan, where can they go? Um, it is OneShark.com. So nice. that's, that's a list of our last six games and we have a lot of cool stuff up there. So if you like the art style and you like the, the things you see in Doors of Insanity, there's five other games you can play right now. And uh, Doors of Insanity, early access in February. That's right. We're very excited. On the 10th of Feb, isn't it? 10th of February right now, if I do my job correctly. And I, I hope I do. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, Doors of, Doors of Insanity hitting early access on Steam on the 10th of Feb. Thank you very much for joining me, Logan. Of course. I hope to see you again sometime. Yeah, we look forward to seeing what you do next. Awesome. Yeah, I'm going to stick around. I hope you do too. Pixel Sift is produced by Scott Quigg, Sarah Ireland, myself, Mitch Lowe, Daniel Ang, Adam Christo, and our executive producer is Gianni DiGiovanni. As always, we'll be sticking the links to everything we talked about in the show notes of our website, pixelsift.com.au. And uh, if you can also come and join us on Discord, we'd love to have you there. That's pixelsift.com.au forward slash discord where you can share your creative work talk about topics and games and anything else that's pixelsift.com.au forward slash discord and if while i've got you here can we ask you a favor we need your help to share the show and tell a friend subscribe your brothers and sisters uh so start someone's journey into podcasts because we know that getting started is tricky but once you're in you'll love it too much to leave we'll be back with pixel sift plays next week um we'll be playing i think i'm not sure what we'll be playing we're playing an australian indie game but for now that's all for this week thank you for joining us and we'll catch you next time and thank you once again logan for joining me been a pleasure thank you